So it's my uh, opportunity to get to talk with you today and give the third and final uh, message in a series uh, late this summer talking about money. You know, uh, I wonder, have any of you heard horror stories about churches talking about money and doing bad things? I mean, being manipulative and mean and unethical, and a couple of you have, yeah, all of us have, haven't we? (laughs) In fact, probably all of us have stories of appreciation too, don't we? Where churches really have gotten it right and with integrity and honestly, they've, they've told the way. Uh, we promised uh, uh, us as a congregation this summer that we would talk about two things that God cares a lot about, churches often don't talk about, that either are great blessings or mess up a lot of people's lives. And we've managed to do that this summer. We've talked about sex and money. And it's my treat today to finish that three-part series on money. Other team members talked about earning, and last week uh, Russell talked about uh, spending and saving, and I get to talk about the best one. You know what it is? Giving. Yeah. Come on, with a little enthusiasm. Yeah. (laughs) Well, as many of you know, this has been uh, really an amazing last few days for me with uh, my uh, father's dying and going to be with Jesus. And in fact, uh, just uh, we had an amazing emotional week last week. We started on Monday where I was the officiating minister standing at the uh, head of uh, dad's casket in our family private uh, burial uh, graveside service. And it's an amazing thing to talk about your dad and to commit his body to the ground. And then our family went into the country church building where he uh, almost 92 years ago was essentially born and raised and now again lived the last years of his life there outside of Albany, the Fairview Mennonite Church. And to go inside and for me just to have retro flashback of uh, my Mennonite upbringing days. And uh, the only difference was they actually had some musical instruments uh, in the church now as a part of the worship. Uh, I grew up singing a cappella, and it was just wonderful four-part harmony as the congregation sang hymns with gusto and as they did at my dad's uh, memorial service. So that started the week, and then at the end of the week on last Sunday, we weren't here because we were at our sister church, New Life Center in Everett, Washington, where we got to be a part of our granddaughter Katie's baby dedication. So in our four-generation family, we started the week with celebrating the life and passing of the great-grandpa and and ended the week celebrating the coming into life of our granddaughter. What an amazing week. Uh, One of those times that all of us have encountered in life that really cause us to ask the questions about what's important in life. Those things just come to the surface, don't they? I certainly thought about my dad and his, his estate. Dad left... Dad is a very generous person and got it right in terms of loving God and loving people. But the estate that he ended up with was less than $2,000. And by far the most valuable physical possession that he left was um, a 17-year-old Toyota Corolla that has definitely seen its better years long, long ago. But he left a very rich legacy of life of living a life of generosity toward God and toward people. And it come from that emotional place today as I get to talk for a few minutes with you about money and about giving. You know, there's over 500 verses in the Bible that talk about prayer. Would we all agree that prayer is a pretty important thing? Absolutely critical. If you don't pray, you need to. And if you do pray, learn some fresh ways to do that. You'll never run out of finding ways to talk with God. There's almost 500 verses in the Bible that talk about faith. Would we agree that faith is a pretty important thing? Yeah. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. 
This is astounding. There are over 2,000 verses in the Bible that talk about money. Is that amazing? Now, I don't think that there's 2,000 verses about money because money is four times more important than prayer or that money is more times more important than faith. My hunch is that God knew when the Holy Spirit inspired Scripture that people like me would need to hear about money about four times more. Because money is both a gift from God and it's a test from God. In fact, the way we deal with money speaks volumes about what our essential relationship with God is and how we really are loving God and loving people. Jesus said it so clearly this way. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This morning I want to read from two different passages. Uh, The good news for you is I'm not going to read all 2,000 verses. That'd be all right for you today. That's okay. The bad news is that I have to just pick selectively from a few places in this, I was going to say brief talk, but you know better than that, but this talk today. But we are going to be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and then a few minutes later, we'll be reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And if you brought Bibles or you care to use a Bible in the, uh, the seat uh, rack under you, or if you prefer to look on the screen, those are all ways to access these passages. I will also quote or read from some other selected verses, and you might want to jot those down on your note pages for your own future reference. Jesus states the frequent biblical principle of, I love this word, just let it roll off my lips, reciprocity. Isn't that one fun? If you want to try it on, you could say it with me. You know it, reciprocity. Just a beautiful word. It simply means that what you give is going to come back. You know, the colloquialism that says what comes around goes around has a whole lot of truth in it. Jesus said it this way in Luke chapter 16, verse 38. Give, and it will be given to you. Pressed down, shaken together, running over, it will be poured into your lap. Because the measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. The principle of reciprocity. We find it all through Scripture. What you give will come back. Now, Jesus was not, in this context, speaking about money. The verse is applied to money and everything else in life that's a resource. But in the previous verse, he's actually talking about our attitudes toward others. And so he says, don't judge or you'll be judged. Don't condemn others or you will be condemned. Forgive others and you will be forgiven. Because with the measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. So, there are some things that we want to measure out in little doses. Thankfully, to the whole world, I am not a cook. But if I were, I would use this half teaspoon for things that were very potent or things that I didn't like very much. So when it comes to judgment, I want to be rather cautious about the judgments that I make and pronounce about other people. Because if I use a half teaspoon word of judgment or condemnation, that's what's going to be used in measuring it back my way. If I like to be forgiven, and trust me, I need forgiveness, and I like to be, I want to use a cup measure for that one. I want to just be sloppy and giving forgiveness wherever it pops up that I might. Because it will be returned to me with the same measure. 
Now, notice how much God respects us. This is just mind-boggling to me. Infinite, creative God respects us this much. He lets us decide much of the quality of life that we're going to experience by what we invest forward. And he says to you, later we'll read, as each one has decided in their heart. It's entirely up to you. It's entirely up to me which measure I use and what I want to give out. But with the measure you give, the same measure will be used in coming back. Uh, Some of you may have uh, eaten a hot wok at New Seasons. Um, I stole this bowl from them, and so I have the real thing here today. No, I didn't steal it. I asked for permission, and they're looking for it back. But some of you have been there, and a hot walk is there's a, a bar of raw stuff. And you go along, it's like a buffet. And you pick out all the raw stuff that you want, and you put it in here, and then you give it to the folks, and you tell them what sauce you want, and then they stir fry it. And if you want, they put sesame seeds on it. And so they give it back to you exactly what you gave them. They give it back to you, but it's new and it's improved and it's hot and it's all tasty. Uh, Some of you met and remember Ann's brother, Joe Whitwer, who pastors our sister church in Spokane Life Center. And he was here a few weeks ago and spoke. Uh, Joe Whitwer, I think, is the all-time king buffet person. Any of you know any people that are really good at buffets? I'm into food buffet, yeah. I don't see any hands going up, but I see a lot of fingers pointing right now. you got all the kings and the queens of the buffet. So Joe and Lane are visiting us. We walk across the parking lot. We go over to New Seasons, and we're introducing them to hot walks. And uh, Joe's a pretty decisive guy. It doesn't take him very long. So it was a surprise that all of us have already passed in our bowls to get them walked, and Joe is still over there in the line. And so I went over to see what he was doing. Well, Joe had gone through once, and he had piled it up. But see, the deal is it's $6.95 regardless of how much you put in. Joe had piled his full, and then they happened to have uh, raw green beans that day. And Joe was taking green beans one at a time, and he was building a green bean fort around his hot lock bowl, and then he filled up the second story with his second run through, proud of himself, and came through. I've had several hot walks since then. I have never seen green beans again on the menu there. (laughs) Jesus said this, give, and it will be given to you with the same measure. In fact, it will come back more than the measure. It will be, and he uses this agrarian farming image of people who were gleaners, who would have come to the edge of fields that were supposed to be left unharvested so that the poor and the nation could come and glean And they would come either with a piece of material or maybe even the the, uh, flowing garment that they would wear. And they might have a long distance to go back home. And so they would fill that cloth as much as they could with the kernels of grain or of corn. And it would be pressed down and then it would be shaken so the air pockets would be filled in with grain. It would be running over in their lap before they would start the journey back home. That's the promise of abundance that's given when we give. Did you notice? regardless of what we give, for ill or for good. And so we take a look at our first of two simple but profound ideas today. The first big idea is this. It's about tithing, giving first. Give the tithe first and experience blessing. Let's read from Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. 
Uh, please later read the whole chapter and then read all of chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians, but let's just dip in for these ideas. Now about the collection for God's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections have to be made. Very briefly, the context. This church had decided all on their own that they wanted to be generous in their giving and they wanted to help other Christians who were in a place apparently experiencing uh, some drought. And Paul was going to come and he was going to receive this generous offering and he was going to transport it to the other churches. These folks needed a little encouragement along the way and so he gave them some ideas about how they could do that. We discover these things. First, that we give first and we give regularly and we give proportionately. This is the principle of first fruits or firstborn or the tithe, which is all throughout Scripture. The idea has never been absolutely how much one gives. It has always been about the generosity of the proportion with which one gives. You remember the great story of Jesus. He and his followers go past the temple. A poor widow drops in two pennies. Jesus is astounded at her tremendous faith and generosity. Not because two pennies was worth so much, but because proportionately what she gave was so generous and was so extravagant. This idea about tithing, about giving the tenth, I, if you don't mind, I'll just tell a little bit of my story. You know, I, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm old enough to be able to answer Dr. Phil's question. How's that working for you? So today you're going to hear from the old guy. It's working pretty well. And you'll also find that we're not really doctrinaire and demanding and driving. People end up with a lot of different decisions about how they're going to give. Did you notice about how much God respects us? He works with you in making that decision. We feel that as a church as well. But Ann and I thought it might be helpful to tell part of our story. I first learned about giving the tenth, the first, to God as a, a little kid. And when I got money... My parents helped me calculate what a tenth of that would be. That's what a tithe means. And I would give it that weekend and offering at church during that part of our worship time. And when I started getting an allowance, I got paid on Saturday morning for chores that I had done, and I calculated how much the tenth was, and I would take that from my own earnings or increase to church, and I would give it. And so I grew up with that as just a part of my life and thinking. And I'm very fortunate to have that heritage because not all of you know this about me. Some of you have suspected it. But all on my own, I would be a cheap, small, greedy person. I really would. Just small about that. Um, Anne has a gift of generosity. It just bursts out of her. You know, my natural bent is toward being cheap and stingy. God knew I needed a good running start on my uh, soul being redeemed and my life being transformed. And, and I think that he's doing a pretty good job. He's been working at it for a while. When I bought my first calf, I was 12 years old, and uh, I named him Herphy. Those of you that are ranchers, you, you know what kind of a calf that was. Not a very creative name, but a very affectionate. And I loved Herphy, and I bought Herphy, and I bought grain and feed for Herphy, and I took care of Herphy, and Herphy grew up, and I took Herphy one Saturday to the uh, uh, cattle auction, and I sold Herphy, and I had a few tears. And then I picked up my check from the office, and I had big smiles all the way to the bank. I had big smiles. So that was on Saturday, and I calculated what my increase had been, what my profit had been. Her fee cost this much, feed cost this much, other expenses were this much. This is what he got paid for. This was the net, 
And the next week I gave the tithe. It just made sense. That's how I thought people who loved God did things. And it made sense for me to give that at the church where I was loved and part of the community and nurtured and fed. That's where we gave the tithe. I learned to do that as a kid. Generosity became a practice. I later discovered that really the idea of giving the firstborn or first fruits or the tithe pervades all of Scripture. In fact, we can go back earlier, but we see that Abraham tithed to Melchizedek and his grandson Isaac tithed, and we find that Moses very clearly in that legal system of the law prescribed precisely how that was to happen. We find that Jesus validated the tithe as he's talking to the Pharisees, and he's chiding them because they were so particular about tithing on their herbs in their garden, but they were avoiding the great issues of the heart. And he said to them, you should do one and not neglect the other. You should do both as well. The apostle Paul doesn't use the word tithe specifically, but he talks about regularly and proportional giving. And so we we listen to Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, where it describes the common principle well. Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all of your increase, so that your barns may be filled with plenty and your vats may overflow with new wine. Hey, let's have some fun. Let's have some fun with something that I have never before in my life had, a big fat wad of $100 bills right here in my pocket. Is this amazing or what? Do some of you know what president is on a $100 bill? A Franklin, who knew that? See, you've seen them before. Paul, you've seen one of these before. This is an amazing thing. There's a Franklin, a Ben Franklin on this $100 bill. So this will be kind of fun. Do you notice the great distance that I've created between you and me this morning for this particular talk? Yeah, right here. We knew that this little illustration was going to come up. So count them out with me. One, two, three, four, five. With me. Six, seven, eight, nine, ten. First question. This is not a trick question. You know the answer. Say it out loud. How much of this is a tithe? 100. Tithe means literally 10%. It's not 6%, 8%, 15%, 40%. It's literally that. And so here is a tithe. Now, this question, it's not a trick question, but you might want to think about it. Which one of these $100 bills is the tithe? Ah, the first one. It's the firstborn, it's the first fruits, it's the first. Now that's interesting to me. In fact, you remember the story of Joshua leading God's people into the promised land? And you remember the first city that was their city of conquest? It was Jericho. And as you read through, it was the first of ten cities that they took. And you may recall that for Jericho, God gave them a particular and an unusual instruction. He said, All of the gold and the silver that you get from Jericho is mine. And then God said, and all of the rest from the rest of the cities is yours. It was the principle of the first fruits. Well, and of course, you remember there was a guy named Achan. It didn't turn out so well for him. He just just couldn't find it within himself to give God the first first. And so he kept secretly some of that for himself. Now, did God need the silver and the gold that Achan kept? Obviously not. It's absurd. But God's people needed to demonstrate love and trust in him by giving the first 
first. And so it didn't go well for the nation. It really didn't go well for Achan and for his family. In that setting, he had missed the idea of giving the first first. Now, when we give according to grace, we may end up giving to God and directly in work and in benevolence and in service to others much more than 10%. But the baseline seems to be starting with that tenth. Now, let me ask you a question. It's a rhetorical question. You probably know the answer. Do all people who love Jesus tithe? Well, the answer is overwhelmingly no. There's a whole light of reasons for that. In fact, it's equally true, isn't it, that a lot of us who love Jesus are on our way in lots of areas of our life. I mean, I know people who love Jesus that are involved in sexual impurity, people who love Jesus that grumble and gripe and complain. I know people who are on their way in loving Jesus and are rather judgmental toward others. All of us are in the experience of being transformed by the work of God's Spirit. Equally so, we're being transformed in our understanding about how to deal with financial resources that God has given us. But this might be shocking for you, just in terms of what the experience of Christians is. Less than half of members of churches in the United States support the church in any way financially. I mean, they don't even tip. You know what a tipper is. A tipper is someone that comes and enjoys the meal and then puts a tip in. Those are tippers. Half of the people don't even tip. I find that astounding. I really do. I I don't get that. This year in the United States, about 2% of the income of Christians will be given in kingdom-extending work through their local churches and in ministries beyond. Now, this year, about 40 billion dollars is going to be invested by Americans on caring for their pets, which is the same amount of money that Americans are going to give to support churches and Christian work. Interesting cultural value statement, isn't it? Well, how about internationally? This year, Christians in the world will earn about $16 trillion and will give about 2% of that in kingdom work. Now, how does that strike you when you hear those stats? For me, it's with a sense of deep regret. Oh, no. That Christians who profess love and faith in God would give at almost the same level of generosity that people who are pre-Christians, yet to experience God's regeneration of heart and spirit, yet to be filled with God's spirit, and yet to have a confident faith in Jesus Christ, which just tells us that there's a lot of learning and discovery for us as the church of Jesus to be engaged in. Well, let's have some more fun with the $1,000 here, all right? Here we go. Let's imagine that you are three of my friends today. And let's decide that uh, you're one group of friends over here, and the two of you sections here are one group of friends. Okay, you guys can get along okay? Be my friend. There we go. And over here, let me see over here. Uh, you guys are with Brad, lead guitarist today. You're going to be stuck with Brad, okay? Okay? Because it's not going to turn out all that well for Brad's group. All right. <laughs> so here we go. So the deal is I'm going to go away on an extended trip. No, you cannot pray for that. No, no, no. This is a hypothetical. I go away on an extended trip, and I decide to pick three of my friends, and I'm going to send you each month $1,000. So personalize it. Good deal. 
$1,000. Now, the deal is that you have to give Anne $100. You can keep the other $900. I couldn't care less what you do with it. Do whatever you want with it. It's yours to spend. It's an extra $900 a month. Just give $100 to Anne. And so I do that with this friend and with this friend and with this friend. So guess what happens? Ann and I are talking, and in about four months, we have a phone conversation. I say, How, how's things, things going? She says, well, your first friend is doing great. Sends me $100 a month. I really appreciate that. And I'm going, good job, you guy, because you're doing exactly what I asked. And then she says, uh, the second friend has just been extraordinary because every month I get $200 from the second friend. And I'm going, whoa, you care about the same stuff I care about. We share some common values. You are even more generous than what was required. And then, Brad, we're coming to you. Say, well, how's Brad and the team doing over there, Annie? She says, well, you know, it's kind of a funny thing. I think Brad must have broken one of the hundreds because the first month I got 80, and the next month I got about 30, and last month I haven't seen anything in the mail yet from Brad. Now, what do you think I'm going to do? I'm going to say to you guys, I'm going to keep sending a thousand bucks a month to you because you're doing exactly what I asked. But you know, when I come over here to Buddy Brad, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to say, I just sent you the last grand, buddy, because I'm going to give it to this friend because this friend has demonstrated stewardship and faithfulness and shared values. Now, as I've told that story, it probably dawned on you that that sounds kind of similar to one of the parables that Jesus taught. Not exactly so, wasn't intended to be, but the point that he made fits here very well. What Jesus said at the end of that story was something that can be confusing if you miss the context. I think it makes sense in this context. Jesus said, do you see this Jesus who left us for an extended period, this Jesus who is coming back for his bride, the church, this Jesus that he has asked us to care for one another in his physical absence, says at the end of his story, So I will go to the one who does not have and will take what he does have and will give it to the one who has. That's what Jesus said. It's a story about stewardship. Another way of saying what we give comes back. What one reaps is what is sown. For everyone who has, more will be given and he will have an abundance, but from the one who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. So when Ann and I give, we, we practice tithing, first of all, and that's the first thing we're talking about today. And we do that electronically. I, I don't know. I, I don't check. I assume many of you do the same thing. I understand that within a couple of months, we'll have the ability on the Evergreen website for you to give on the site as well. But we do a bill pay kind of thing, and we set it up. So we give regularly, and we give proportionally, and we give a tenth. And this is how we do it. You can do it anyway. You're called to it. It's your responsibility. But what works well for us is answering the question, how can we give the first first instead of giving the last last? So we tithe at the end of the month for the next month. So it's set up for a check to be sent to Evergreen that arrived the last week of August for the month of September. 
And then here's kind of a fun little quirky thing we do that in just a couple of minutes when I tell a concluding story, it will make sense for you. We don't tithe based upon what our guaranteed income is for the next month. We tithe on the basis of what we think we need to receive the next month. It's the first fruits. And then we get to do the second thing where we'll wrap it up today, which talks about the giving of offerings as well. And this is where it gets exciting because this is the joyful experience of multiplication, giving of offerings as well. The second place I wanted to read with you is 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and I'm going to start with verse 6 and read a few verses, follow along if you will, and notice with me the richness and the exuberance and the extravagance of the language here. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he's decided in his heart to give not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it's written, and now he quotes from the Old Testament, he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now, Paul writes, he, God, who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, will also supply and increase your righteousness, harvest of righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. Notice this rich language, all grace, all things, all that you need, every good work, made rich in every way, generous in every occasion, overflowing. We learn these three principles. First, whatever you sow, you'll reap. Good or bad, it will come home. Whatever you sow, you'll reap. The second principle, you can't reap what you don't sow. Farmers understand that very well. And the third, you'll always reap more than you sow. Pressed down, shaken together. My first experience uh, was uh, giving a significant offering beyond my little kid practice of tithing was when I was 10 years old. Uh, our country church had an annual missions conference in February, and missionaries would come for the week, and they would talk and do their thing, and we all came out. And, and at the beginning of the week, we were given uh, faith promise cards. Have any of you gotten those at different churches? It's not a practice that we do here regularly. We may someday, but we don't. And, but it was, a, it was a wonderful part of our faith experience there. And the deal was, over the course of the week, pray and ask God how much he wants you to give in offerings for this international missions work. And at the end of the week, put that in the offering basket, and then that will be kept between you and God and the church treasurer to know what you have pledged to give. So I actually took that at face value. I'm a 10-year-old kid, and I'm sitting there, and I'm listening, and I pray, and I ask God how much to give, and he gives me a figure that comes to mind. And I believed that. And I wrote it down, and I signed my name, and I put that card in the offering. Well, I found out years later that the church treasurer was aghast because it was a ridiculously large amount for a 10-year-old kid. So she called my mom, and she said, Gene, do you know what your son has done? Do you and Jake know what your son has done? No, we don't. And so she told her what I had done. And my mother responded so wisely. She said, well, 
we didn't know that that's what he had written down, but let's just not say anything and let's just see what happens. Is that wise or what? And without my parents' intervention, a few months later, I had completely paid that faith pledge because God provided. And I learned an amazing lesson at age 10, which is one of the reasons we're so crazy about kids around here and so focused on the kind of quality of church life experience that they enjoy here because God makes kids part of his church. What I learned as a 10-year-old kid was this, that God could use me far beyond my resources to be a blessing to other people in any way he chose as long as I partnered with him by faith in taking the steps that he had asked me to take. The amazing opportunity of multiplication with the giving of offerings. When I was in high school, uh, I worked in the summers and uh, saved up some money and paid to cash, which I understood was a, kind of a smart way to buy stuff. And I bought a car. I thought it was pretty cool. A 1967 Plymouth... Oh, Barracuda. I still have a place in my heart for that car. I, that's the car that Ann... Uh, one on a first date with me in right there, that, that car. And uh, she eventually even liked me, but the car had a lot to do with that <laughs> initial connection thing. And uh, I think it was uh, about five years old when I bought it, and it was kind of a fun car for a high school junior and senior. And went to college, and after my freshman year of college, there was a, a revival that happened uh, there at the U of O in my dorm. I think there was like 52 guys who lived there, and the beginning of the year, two of them knew Jesus. At the end of the year, 17 of them were in a full, fully committed relationship with Jesus. And they had friends that were coming to the Lord. And, and we all wanted to go to church Sunday mornings and Sunday nights and Wednesday nights. And, and so I decided to buy a van that I could take all of my buddies to church in. And so I worked the next summer and I bought a van, an old hippie Econoline Ford frumpy van. This was back before seat belts, which was a good thing because there was no seats in the van. It was cargo van. We threw some carpet back there. And I think our record attendance in the van going to church was 23 college students. Yeah. It's a life-threatening experience just going to church and back. It was really quite horrible. And I, it's very cool. I had some air shocks in the back of the van. So before we headed out to church, I pumped them up and the van started like this. And then over the course of loading it up and getting it to 23, it was like this. And we were still dragging, you know, the, the bottom, the bumper on our way into church. So I bought the van, and I thought, well, I'll sell the Barracuda, and I'll get some cash for that. That was the plan. It makes sense, doesn't it? And I felt the Lord say to me one day in my quiet time, give the car to Jim. You know, Jim was one of my buddies there in the dorm. I won't bother you with the details of how I had to sort through that with God, but I will give you the sweet and self-congratulatory bottom line. I gave him the car. Fast forward seven years. And not only liked the car, she liked me, she married me. We started a church, we started a family, and we were poor. Driving an old beater. I affectionately called them disposable cars. Very green of me. And one day, a friend came driving in the parking lot and uh, had a beautiful family car. And he came bounding up to the front steps where we greeted him, and he was smiling big, and he said, Jesus told me to give you this car, and here's the keys, and here's the license. That's what he said. A great lesson for us, because it really does work out that way. 
At our time of abundance, we were able to give. And in our time of need, we were able to receive. So as interesting or charming or not as it might be for you to hear stories about my faith when I was 10 and 12 and 19 and 25, none of us get to draft off of where we were, do we? That's not the nature of faith. In fact, we wouldn't want life to get so regular that if Jesus was removed from the mix, we wouldn't notice, would we? That's called Christian agnostics, living like God doesn't exist while forming to the, the, holding to the form of faith. Well, if you're like us, God certainly doesn't let that happen. So we have a very fresh story. A year ago, just over a year ago, when Ann and I were asked if we would pray about coming to Evergreen, uh, we had jobs and roles and income, all of which we really enjoyed. It was working very well for us. But always when you're asked for, to, to consider an opportunity, we respond by faith, you would do the same thing. And so we prayed and we talked, and it became very clear that the Lord was calling us to come and serve Evergreen. We were very excited about that. And then one of the representatives of the church had to come tell us how much we'd get paid. And he was a little bit nervous about that. And when he reported that, it was kind of like with a little bit of apology. And uh, he told us how much it was, and we did the quick calculation. And for us to come, it meant we would take a 40% decrease in, in pay, and which is neither here nor there, because the decision would not be made on income. And so as whatever the church can provide at the time, that's great. It's our responsibility to take care of ourselves. Uh, how, however, we did ask the question, can we simply afford to reduce our monthly commitments by 40% and make that fit? We didn't have to think about that very long. The quick answer was no. So we thought, this is going to be an exciting adventure of faith. I have fun stories when I was 10 and when I was 12, when I was 19 and when I was 25 and everything in between. Way too many decades to bother you with telling these stories about. But guess what? At 54, we're going to get to have some fresh stories of living on the edge of faith. And here we are. So we had a very interesting fall. Very interesting fall. Have you noticed that God always supplies everything he needs to supply and sometimes does that substantially later than we think he could have? Yeah, very interesting fall, very exciting for us. And then it was about the week of Christmas that I was asked by a company that I was associated with if I would, uh, for a few months, serve as their interim president, and they would pay me a consulting contract. And I said, no, can't do that. Full-time service to Evergreen, you understand that? And they said, well, we really do, but we really want you, we'll be really respectful of your time and full-time commitment to Evergreen, and we'll pay you really well, too, to do this for a few months. You have absolute flexibility to work around all of your other commitments. That was God's provision for us. And I resigned from that uh, a couple of months ago in June. Felt like the Lord was saying, you're done with that, and I resigned. And this will not surprise you. That generous consulting contract, which was very part-time in terms of work, not only met our needs for the months of January, February, March, April, May, and June, but was so generous that it paid back the missing gap in income from last summer until then. Isn't that amazing how God can do that in his time and in his way? So guess where we are now? Well, right here on the edge again. What a great place to be. Who would want to live anybody else, right? <laughs> Who would want to live anyplace else? So uh, we're going into the summer, and we'll see what God does, because it's going to be a different thing. He's going to do a different thing for us this summer. And it was a few weeks ago that Ann and I got a call and, uh, of a denomination that's headquartered in uh, Ohio that both Ann and I have done consulting for in the past. And they said, we're going to bring together uh, our top national leaders for a few days in September, and we'd really like for Ann and you, Jared, to come and to consult with us for two days. 
And so we'll be leaving, uh, I don't know, in a few days, and we're going to go to Ohio, and we'll consult with them for two days. And guess what? The fee that they pay us for that two days of consultation will be just the amount that we need to see ourselves through this month. See, when I mentioned before that when we tithe, we tithe in advance and we tithe on what we need, not in terms of what's guaranteed, because that just seems to be the way God does things, that he's going to provide so the opportunity of expressing that by faith in advance. You may come to some different conclusions. Did I mention that God respects you? I did, didn't I? And that we do as well? And let me, as we begin to move towards some final decisions that you'll be making today, conclude with this. Paul said it so well. Each one gives as he's decided in his own heart. Isn't that the most beautiful, respectful statement that could be made? Understanding how things work in God's kingdom and provision, he leaves it up for each of us to decide how we would like to participate in that. So let me ask what your next best step is. As this last slide comes up and as we consider together what God might be saying to you today, maybe the next best step for you is to be engaged with Financial Peace University. In fact, uh, the truth of the matter is we are now full, but I think we're going to squeeze just a few more folks in. But as of last night, there was 115 of us that have signed up to be a part of that. There's room for a handful. A few more signed up after the 9 o'clock service. But why are we doing Financial Peace University? Because we really believe that God is giving this Dave Ramsey uh, 13-week opportunity for us as a gift Because each of us, wherever we are in our understanding of financial stewardship, want to be in a place where we can be freer and more generous. When I talk to friends here at Evergreen over this past year, I have yet to talk to somebody that says, you know, I really like being greedy. I'm planning to stay greedy. And in fact, I'm working on becoming greedier. (laughs) Really? It just doesn't happen, does it? Because we have God's likeness. The, The Holy Spirit is producing in you the likeness of Jesus. And we're like our Father. God so loved the world that he what? Gave. His first fruits, his firstborn, his only son, so that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. We're like our Father. But as I talk to friends, I do hear stories about how difficult it is to express the heartfelt generosity in real practical giving. I hear stories of those of us that have found ourselves because of financial decisions we've made so far in debt that we just barely keep our head above water servicing the debt that's there. That's a real issue for many in our culture and many of us here. Some of us talk about the conflicted relational issues where someone that we're living with that we need to be partners in making, giving, and other financial decisions with. And there's a real difference of opinion there and how difficult it is to sort through. There's others that describe fear that they have, just deep fear that's paralyzing in terms of being as generous as they wish to be toward God and toward others as well. So all of us as a community get to participate together in addressing those issues and others over 13 weeks, starting on the 14th of September. Tuesday nights from 7 to 9, you pay for the stuff, 99 bucks, and we provide the context and the environment. Dave Ramsey comes, 
not live, but via video, and we'll have a presentation, and then we'll break up into some small table groups. And we're a church that loves kids, and we want the kids of this church to grow up with parents that have their finances in order. So there's going to be great stuff for kids through fifth grade as well, as they're getting to do things as you're here as well. Maybe your next best step is to sign up for FPU. Maybe, second, your next best step is to talk to a family member. Maybe there's conflict or tension, but maybe this is the fresh time for you to talk again about what you would like to do in terms of your finances being in order and your generosity. Maybe the next best step for you, which one do you see there? Is the slide up? Go ahead and help me because I don't have the notes in front of me. Oh, I have to read it. Come on. Repent of a fearful or selfish attitude. That's what it says. You didn't want to read that one. (laughs) Some of you have started out where I started out, which is really selfish and inward and focused and fearful. And the solution for that is always to turn and go the other direction toward Jesus. Uh, Maybe today your next best step is to receive God's gift of love and mercy and grace For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever would believe in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. Would you pray with me?